Greetings to you from your brothers and sisters in Brooklyn, New York. Um, as uh, um, Bob just prayed, um, I am um, a minister in Brooklyn, New York. I've been there for about six or seven years. Um, and uh, I am delighted to be here with you today, this morning, just to kind of um, celebrate God's presence with us. Um, and I hear that you guys uh, have just celebrated your 10th anniversary as a church. Um, so happy 10th anniversary. Um, getting close to it. I'm sorry, getting close to it. So happy early 10th anniversary. So you know the next five years are going to just be really awkward, right? Because you guys are entering the preteen years of church life. It's just going to be awkward. It's going to be really awkward. Um, no, I'm really excited about um, our church actually just celebrated our 10th anniversary last year. Um, and so it was really interesting hearing uh, Mark and just sort of, uh, we, we uh, are staying with Mark and his wife, Leslie, and, um, and uh, it's just really interesting to hear some of the plans that you guys have for your church over the next five, few years, like with Grace Teams, um, putting these plans in place kind of for the next stages of life. As you think about your church and, and the, the mission you've been called to, it's really exciting, right? I mean, just like you think about a kid and, and their next sort of stages of life, like when a kid turns 10, you think about the plans that you have for them. Um, God has a lot of plans for you in this church, and, and it's really exciting to hear about. It's really exciting to hear as you prepare for your next stage of life. Um, and it's really, it's really fun to plan. It's really fun to plan life. It's really fun to plan even... Not only your, your life as a church together, but it's also fun to, to plan your, make your own individual plans. Um, I'm doing that right now. I'm, I'm kind of preparing for summer. I'm making my summer plans. Um, I don't know if you have your summer plans, um, put together or not, if you kind of know where you're going. Um, but I'm putting together my summer plans right now. And actually, I found this kind of one of the most frequent questions that, uh, gets asked, um, as school's kind of coming to a close. What are you doing for the summer? You find that to be the case, you have conversations, what are you doing for the summer? What's going on? What are, you, what are your plans? Where are you going? Who are you going to go see? And usually what we do, if this is correct, correct me if this is wrong, when you make your plans, you, you go make plans to go see the people that you love and to go see the places that you want to go see to enjoy, right? That's what you plan. When I, when I make my plans, I want to go see beautiful places and I want to go enjoy the relationships um, that, I have, that have been given to me. Um, and that, that's the way we approach our plans, right? We approach our plans that way. We want, to, we want to go enjoy life. We want to make the most out of life. We want to make the most out of the relationships that we've been given. And that's what it really means. As you make your summer plans, that's what it means to be human. <laughs> what it means to be human is that, you know, whatever your plans may be or whatever that you wish they could be, you and I want to experience the beauty of nature and culture. And we want to enjoy the relationships that we've been given. And, you know, when you begin to plan, that's just a, that's just sort of a, a, a little foreshadowing or, or of what it means to be human, right? It means that you, um, you want those things. You want to experience the beauty of creation. You want to experience the beauty of uh, your, the, relationship, the relationships you've, be, you've been given. The historic Christian church calls this, uh, this idea of experiencing those things glory, that we, you actually were made for that. You were made to experience relationship with other people. You were made to enjoy the beauty of creation. And the Bible calls that glory, that you were made for glory. You and I were made for those things. You know it in your bones. That's what you're hardwired for. That's what I'm hardwired for. That's why I get so excited when it comes time to plan, make my summer plans. 
You know, my family and I, we love to go to national parks. We love to go to the beach. And there's something that's awakened in me when I begin to sort of make those plans because that's what it means to be human. I'm getting in touch with something the way that God has made me to be. There's glory. To get to be with the people I love, to get to do the things that I love to do, that's glory. That's what God has made us for. He's made us to experience that. He's, he's given us the gift of today. He's given us the gift of people, of creation. And when we make those plans, that sort of is awakened in us a little bit. That what our hardwiring, what we're hardwired for is we're meant to experience this, this life in harmony that we can enjoy. And we were meant for that forever. That's how you and I were made. We were meant to enjoy those relationships and to experience creation forever. And that's true not only of your summer plans, that's true of your life plans too. You know, I, the job of a pastor, I know Mark and I have talked about this, it is such a joy to be a pastor because as a pastor, um, you get to hear your plans. As a, the, Mark gets to hear your plans, uh, what your plans are, and that is such a joy. I know that's a joy of mine. I get to hear the, the parishioners in my church, I get to hear their plans about what they want to do. And it's such a joy to hear those plans the ways they want to experience relationships uh, and experience culture. But it's also the job of a pastor and the job of the church, really, and the responsibility of the church, not only to hold up and to say, yeah, those plans are amazing, pursue them. But just as we sung a moment ago, we sang this in our very first hymn. Um, we sang this hymn, you can, you can turn there, it's on page two. We sang, we blossom and flourish, but quickly grow fail. We wither and perish, but you never fell. That's so true of life, isn't it? That we were made to blossom and flourish. We were made to, gl to have glory, to experience those, those things that, that get us sort of going in life. But yet, we know that we wither and we fail, that our plans are going to fail. And that's the tragedy of life, and that's the job of a pastor, is to hold that intention that, to hold that intention, that, that, to, to, to know that you've been made for glory, but at the same time, to know that there's tragedy in this, in this life, and that ultimately you're going to be separated from the people that you love. Ultimately, there's going to be death that's going to come for all of us, and it's going to separate. And so the job, uh, uh, the responsibility of the church is to sort of live in that tension. <laughs> to live in that tension. And here we are, we come to this passage here in Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 11 through 17. You can see, you can follow it here in your bulletin. It's on page 863 if you have um, uh, uh, Bibles there in front of you. And, and here we come to this passage, and Jesus is showing us how to live in this tension of knowing that you were made for glory. You were made for relationships. You were made to live forever, to enjoy and experience creation, but yet there's this tragedy. There's this tragedy of death that separates us from one another. And Jesus... This is where we come on this scene with Jesus. And, and I know that Mark, Mark and I went to seminary together, and I've known Mark for over 10 years now. And I know that Mark's goal here, the reason this church was planted, was to focus on Jesus. Jesus is the very center of this place. He's the very center of you, his people. And it's his goal every Sunday to look at Jesus, to listen to him, to listen to his words. And that's what I want us to invite, to invite you to do uh, this Sunday as well. Jesus has been teaching about the plans of God's kingdom. Um, and he's been showing uh, these plans through the healing of the sick. But we come here, Luke chapter 7. This is his first encounter with death. 
in, in the book of Luke. This is his very first encounter. He's been healing the sick. He's been teaching about God's kingdom. But here we come, and this is his very first encounter with death. So let's see what... I want you to, to really... As we go through this text, I want you to look at Jesus. And I want you to listen to him. And I want you to listen carefully to his words and look at his actions. Look at what he does. Listen to what he says. So, that Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 11 through 17. I'm going to read that. Let's see what his plan is for dealing with death. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the gift of today. We give you thanks for calling us into your presence. We give you thanks that just the sun rising, that you've called forth the sun to rise. You've called us here. And you've given us the gift of life. You've awakened us. We give you thanks. We give you thanks that you have given us your word. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see you. We pray that you would give us ears to hear you. We pray that you would turn our hearts to you in faith. We pray that your word will be the power of salvation for all who believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to, kind of, to, to uh, keep your, this passage in front of you, Luke chapter 11, because we're going to be looking closely at it together. And as, as we, uh, you know, this is, this is a widow. We're, at a, we're, we're entering into the scene of a funeral procession. But I want us to think back for a second about this widow. What do you think her plans were before all this happened? What do you think her plans were before she lost her husband and now before she lost her son? I wonder what her life was like with her husband and her son. Just think about that for a second. I wonder what her life was like with her husband and with her son. Actually, Nain, the, the name, that, that word actually means pleasant. <laughs> it means pleasant. She was living in a pleasant place in Nain. And I wonder if her life kind of reflected that. That she was, what did, what did they laugh about? What did they, what did they fight about? <laughs> her and her husband and her son. I, want, I wonder what her life was like. I wonder what her plans were like. When she thought about her life, she only imagined being with her husband and being with her son. Because that's what mothers do. That's what wives do. They imagine that's what we all do. We imagine being together with our family and our friends. You can imagine, before all this happened, that's what she, her plans were. Her plans were to live together with her husband and with her son. That was her plan, to be with them, to do life together with them. And now... We enter this scene, and her husband and her son are gone. They're gone. Her, her plans are ruined. Her worst fears have come true. 
In the most recent issue of New York Times Magazine, there was an article about this family, um, the Levy family, and uh, how they uh, dealt with the reality of one of their worst fears coming true. Um, Their youngest son, their 14-month-old son, was diagnosed with an extremely rare form of leukemia. It was so rare that doctors said it was almost like, it was actually like um, being bitten by a shark and being struck by lightning at the same time. That's how rare this form of cancer was. There was not one single case uh, on, on record of actually beating this form of cancer. Not one single case of actually beating this form of cancer. Um, they described their life up at this point. This is the article. They, they said this. They said, our lives up to this point until this diagnosis were charmed, picture-perfect lives. Their lives were perfect, they called them. They were living out their glorious plans as a family. But their plans were ruined. They actually chose to fight uh, these unbeatable odds. Um, one of uh, the 14-month-old, one of his siblings was a perfect match. And so they chose to do a bone marrow transplant. And it worked just for a time. It worked for a time until the cancer came back and it returned. Um, and the levies, they decided that after the bone marrow transplant, they, did, they, they just made a decision. They said, you know what, we, we want our son to have good quality of life for whatever time he had left, so they refused treatment. Now, I'm not, I'm not here to condemn or condone what this family, the decision that this family made, but to show you that, and imagine, you can imagine the agony that they had in trying to, to wait for the inevitable to happen. They were facing this agony of life with their 14-month-old son. Their worst fears had come true. They were living a nightmare. And that, isn't that the worst fear of all of us? All of us in this room, the worst fear that we have is that we are going to lose the people that we plan to do life with. That we're going to lose the people that we'll just be left with the agony and the grief of life without them. And that's the scene that Jesus enters here. That's the scene that he enters with this widow. He enters this scene and this, this widow is dealing with the agony of the fact that her plans are ruined. Her worst fears have come true. She is in agony, and the town is in agony with her. And they're crying out in agony. And I want us to look at Jesus here, and I want us to listen to him as we go through and reflect on this passage. And I want us to to look at this. I want us to look and see how he turns our worst fears into our greatest hopes. That's what Jesus does. That is what he came to do. He came to turn our worst fears into our greatest hopes. And it's important that we set up that scene to understand that this woman and her worst fears had come true. She was living out a nightmare. But Jesus, he has different plans. He has different plans. He wants to turn our worst fears into our greatest hopes. He wants to turn our mourning into dancing. He wants to stop death and he wants to bring life. And that's what I want us to look at. I want us to look at how Jesus stops death and weeping and how he brings life and joy. So the two moves I'm going to make in the sermon, I want us to first look at how he stops death and weeping. Look back at verses 11 and 12 here. Um, in the text. This, like I said, this is a funeral procession. The widow is actually most likely leading the procession. If you can imagine that. The widow is leading this procession because the Jews believed at that time that a woman's sin, a woman, um, a woman's sin brought death into the world and so the women should lead it out of the town. That a woman's sin brought death into the world so a woman should lead it out. So she's at the head of this funeral procession. And a crowd of about 500 people are, are following her outside of the town. So as 
she is leaving the town. She's leading this procession of about 500 people. And this is not a funeral where people are holding it together. This is a funeral where people are crying out. They are crying out in agony over the loss of this young man. And as these 500 people are, are leading, leaving the city, Jesus and his disciples, and about a crowd of a thousand people, are coming into the city. And they're meeting at the gates, right here at the gates. So you have about 1,500 people who are coming, 500 people that are leaving, a thousand people that are coming in to the city of Nain. This is a big scene. And look at what Jesus does. Look at what Jesus does when he passes by the funeral procession, right at the gate. Can you imagine this? Look at verse 13. When he saw her, first of all, he sees her. Jesus, of all the things that are going on, Jesus sees her. Don't, don't, pass, don't, don't let that pass you by. He sees her. He puts his eyes on her and he gives his attention to her. And then what does it say? He had compassion on her. He sees her and he had compassion on her. Um, it's a book, there's a book uh, called Love Walked Among Us. I don't know if you guys have that on your book table or not. It's a, one of my favorite books. It's a book by Paul Miller. Um, and uh, he just simply looks at the life of Jesus. And one of the things that Paul Miller explains in this book, he says that compassion is the emotion most frequently attributed to Jesus. Compassion is the emotion that's most frequently contributed to Jesus. In other words, when Jesus saw people, he had compassion. That's what, when he saw, when he sees you, <laughs> he has compassion. Think about that for a moment. Sometimes when you think when Jesus sees you, you think, oh, he's angry at me. No, when Jesus sees you, he has compassion on you. His first emotion toward you and towards this world is compassion. And that's his first emotion towards this woman. When the Gospels describe how Jesus looks and he sees people, his response is compassion. His heart went out to this woman. He felt her pain. He felt her agony. And believe me, this woman, she felt at this moment, she felt cut off from hope. She felt cut off from hope. She was much like Naomi in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. If you haven't read that, go, go home and read that this afternoon or this week sometime. Um, read the book of Ruth. This is Naomi. Naomi was a woman who had lost her husband. She had lost her, both of her sons. And Naomi was a name, her name literally meant pleasant. <laughs> it literally meant pleasant. And Naomi, after she lost her two sons in the book of Ruth, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Because God has dealt bitterly with me. She said, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. Because I'm bitter. Because God has dealt bitterly with me. Can you imagine? Maybe that's how the widow felt in Nain. Maybe she felt like Naomi. Far from hope. Far from God. When we imagine our worst fears coming true, when we imagine... Losing the people that we love, we can only imagine what that would be like. Some of us are living that reality. And, I, and I've spoken with some folks who've said, you know what, if that's ever going to be the case, I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. You know, we can imagine just saying, you know what, if, if, if God's going to treat me like that, I, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I don't want to be a part of this Christian faith. I'm out. But this scene shows us otherwise. Because when, when this woman is dealing with loss, when she thinks God is far from her, God is right there with her. This scene shows us otherwise. Jesus is present with a widow. He actually meets us in our despair. In the moments where you think God is far from you, 
He is right there by your side. He's right there meeting with you. And this is a scene that is illustrating this for us. Here's a woman who believes that she is cut off from hope and hope is right there with her. Right there, present with her, meeting her where she is. And when we think God is dealing bitterly with us, He is showing us compassion. This is seen, illustrates that. He is close to us, He feels our pain, and He is with us. And notice, Jesus, Jesus doesn't take His attention off this woman. It doesn't stop there. He does not take His attention off this woman. Even though there's a crowd of 1,500 people, and He had all sorts of things that He could be doing, instead He gives all of His attention to this woman. Look back at verse 13. He tells the woman not to weep. You know, people could say trite, like, trite things at funerals, right? People could say trite things at funerals. And it cause, kind of, sometimes can cause more hurt than help. And in this moment, if you just kind of take this, this seems like a very inconsiderate thing to say to this woman. Don't, don't weep. Seriously? Don't weep? You just, she just lost her husband. She, or she's lost her husband. She just lost her son. If you're going to say something like that, you need to be able to back up your words. Right? And Jesus' plan is to back up his words. He says something like, he says, don't weep. And he plans to back those words up. He really does want her to stop crying. You know, it's almost like a parent. Like when, you know, when a child comes to a parent and says, you know, it's crying because they have a scraped knee. Because they think the, the world is over because they have a scraped knee. And they're crying about it. And the parent says, it's going to be okay. Because the parent knows it's going to be okay. Because the parent has lived through a thousand scraped knees. Right? Jesus wants this woman to stop crying because he knows that in the end, it's all going to be okay. He, he knows that in the end, it's all going to be okay. He, he wants her to stop weeping. Not in the sense that he doesn't want us to, to weep over death, because he himself weeps over death. But he's talking about this in the sense of what he's going to do and he, what he knows his promises and how they're going to become true. He not only meets us in our despair and grief, but he actually wants to stop the pain and suffering. He wants to stop the weeping that is going on in this world. And that's what I hope that you see right here in this passage, is that Jesus wants to stop all the pain and the suffering and the weeping that is going on in your life and in the life of the world. He wants to put it to an end. He wants it to stop. That is his desire. That's why he came. He came to stop it. And he not only came to stop the weeping, but he came to actually stop death itself. Look at verse 14. Jesus came up to the bier, that's the coffin, that the young man who was being carried in, and he touched it. And the bear stood still. Jesus actually stops this funeral procession in its tracks. He stops the entire funeral procession in its tracks just by simply holding up his hand. Now, I don't know, I mean, Mark, I know, is going to be uh, holding up his hands. I don't know if the motorcycles are going to stop for you or not. I don't know if you have that kind of power or not, but New York City ca- traffic cops have that kind of power. You ever drive, driven around the city? Have you ever tried to, like, driven past a cop that holds up his hand? I've tried to do that. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. It's not smart. Because they have power. <laughs> New York City traffic cops have power. Um, and so much power, they hold up their hand, and hundreds of, like, taxis and buses and cars stop. That's the kind of... 
But that's not really, I don't think, what the text is getting at. That was, that was one of my first, as I was reading through the text, that was one of my first reference points, was this New York City traffic cops. But it's even more powerful than that, what's going on here. This is the action of a king. When, when he holds up his hand, this is an action of a king. It's more like Caesar, who decides death or life by simply the gesture of his thumb. It's more like that. That's what's going on here. It's, this is the action of a king. Jesus not only wants to stop death, he wants to hold up his hand and stop it altogether. And that's what's happening right here. Jesus came to stop death, and he does. He stops it in its tracks. He stops death. He says, stop. This is, this is stop. This has got to stop right here. He stops it in his tracks. The funeral procession stops simply by holding up his hand. And touching the beer, touching the coffin, would have made him unclean in the eyes of the crowd. Everybody would have said, oh my gosh, he just touched the coffin. He's unclean. Don't get around him. He's unclean. And that's exactly what happens to Jesus. That's exactly what he wants to happen. He wants to stop death by becoming unclean. He wants to take on our sin that leads to death so that the power of death can rest on him and not us. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to take the uncleanliness of you and of the whole world upon himself. And he wants that to rest on him and he wants death itself to rest on him. Why? So that he can give us life. So that he can give you life. Jesus becomes unclean on the cross and he stops death altogether by taking it all on, the sin of the world. And Jesus' plan is to not only stop our mourning, but he wants to turn it into dancing. His plan is to not only stop death, but he wants to bring life. And that's what happens on the cross. That's what happens on the cross. He, he takes on death, but he gives life. And that's what happens right here. Jesus' plan is always to bring life. If you're wondering, if you're here this morning and you're wondering who is Jesus, and what is his plan? His plan is to bring life. Period. His plan is to always bring life. That is his goal for you. That is his goal for, this, for the East End. His plan is to bring life. Look back at verses 14 and 15. After Jesus stops the funeral procession and touches the coffin, look at what he says. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. And then what happens? The dead man <laughs> sat up and began to speak. It's almost simply like Jesus is waking him up from sleep. It's almost like he's waking him up from a nap, waking him up in the morning. When I was a teenager, um, I liked to sleep in. Any of you like to sleep in when you were a teenager? No? Just me? Well, my dad didn't like it so much. He didn't like that I like to sleep in, so he would come in, kind of, it would be about 11 a.m., come in, he'd burst the door open, and he would just, he had this kind of high-pitched whistle that I can't, I can't do it, um, but he would say, get up, <laughs> get up, David, come on, get up, just get up, get out of bed, and it would, it would happen Every Saturday morning when I was a teenager, 11 a.m. would roll around, I would still be in the bed, and he, he didn't like it. He'd say, get up, because there was life to live. There were things to do, there was life to live, and he would say, get up. He didn't like it. And that's actually how the Bible talks about what is going to happen with us. Did you know that? that the Bible says that the dead are asleep in Jesus, and that just the, the Spirit, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, is going to say to us, get up, get up, get up. And he's going to return us back to life to the glory that we were meant for. 
I wonder what this young man said when he sat up. I wonder what he said. What do you say when you get up? <laughs> oh, wait, maybe I don't want to know that. What do you say when you wake up? What do you say when somebody wakes you up in the morning? Maybe, maybe he didn't have any good things. <laughs> maybe he was kind of mad. I don't know. Maybe he was just kind of like, how long did I sleep for? You know, I wonder what he said. I bet it was something very normal. I bet it was just something completely ordinary and normal. Maybe he rubbed his eyes. Maybe he just said, hey, I'm hungry. I want something to eat. I bet whatever it was, it was just really normal because that's exactly what Jesus wants to do. He just simply wants to return this man back to his normal life. He wants to give him back to his mother and return him back to his normal life. And the crowds who witnessed this uh, life returning to the son and to the mother, they saw, you know, they saw this whole thing happen. They saw this woman's worst fears. They were crying with her. They were weeping with her. And they saw this whole thing happen where her worst fears were turned into her greatest hopes. And look at what they said in verse 16 in response. They said that a great prophet is here, that God has visited with his people. In other words, what this means is, what this would mean in kind of this Hebrew way, would, would, this means that this is a, a language of our arrival. Like this, what we've been waiting for for all these years has happened. It is here. In other words, like think about if you're going through a graduation, you think, Wow, the time has finally come. I'm finally graduating. I've arrived. That's kind of what's happening here. When you get us to your summer de- destination, that, or when you arrive back at home, that feeling of arrival, that feeling of arrival where that something they, they've been waiting on for years and years and years is here. That's what that means. It's this feeling, it's this language of arrival. It's the moment when you say the day is finally here. That's what they're saying. This, what, what they just witnessed means that they've arrived. That God has arrived. He is there with them. And that's actually, it actually recalls what happens in the book of Exodus. Because what happens in the books of Exodus is that these God's people were in slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then God shows up and he rescues them. And they, he brings them out of slavery from the land of Egypt and he brings them into freedom. That's exactly what's kind of being recalled here in this language that God is visiting them. He's, he's there. He's delivering them. And then, do you know what happened after the people were saved from Egypt? They sang and they danced. (laughs) They sang and they danced for the great joy because of what God had done. It was this feeling of arrival. And I can only imagine the the joy that was happening. They they were fearful, but they they were joyful at the same time because God had arrived. He had shown up. And He had shown up in the person of Jesus to raise this young man from the dead. You know, this is not what the woman had planned. This is not what she had planned. She didn't plan for this to happen. She didn't plan to lose her husband. She didn't plan to lose her son. It's not what we plan. This is, you know, we don't plan to lose the people that we love. We all want glory. We all want to be with the people that we love. And we want to experience this world. To enjoy life together with the people that we love. To experience harmony. The harmony of nature and culture. But to put it in theological terms for a second, here's what, I, here's what I think this scene shows us. Is that yes, we were meant for glory. But you can't have glorification without the resurrection. You can't have glorification without the resurrection. What do I mean by that? In other words, God's plan is to give us that life. All that glory that you kind of know that you're, you were hardwired for, God wants to give you. But that's going to come. His plan is to give you that through resurrection. 
His plan is to give you all of that through defeating death, through the resurrection. He wants to give us all those good things. His plan is the resurrection. His plan is the resurrection. This, this story foreshadows what is about to happen to Jesus. Jesus is going to go to the cross, and he's going to stop death. And he's going to die. And they're going to, have a, they're going to carry his body outside, and they're going to bury him. And then God, the Spirit, the Bible tells us that God, the Spirit, calls forth to him and says, Get up! And he arises. And in Jesus' resurrection, death is left behind for good. Death is left behind for good in Jesus' resurrection. And there is only life ahead. In Jesus' resurrection, death is left behind for good and there is only life ahead because that is God's plan. That is God's plan is to bring life. To bring life through resurrection. To give you all those things that you want that are good through the resurrection. God will turn our mourning into dancing. He will turn our worst fears into our greatest hopes because of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection, this is where this is important, I think. His resurrection is the backdrop and the blueprint for your life and for the life of this entire world. What happens here and what happens at the scene of the cross and after the cross when he is raised from the dead, that is a blueprint for what God is going to do and what he is doing in your life and in my life and in the life of this world. And we have to figure out how to live and hope for that day when he's going to, like I said earlier, when God is going to raise the dead, when he is going to say, get up, the power of his spirit is going to, to raise us from the dead. When he comes again and he tells everyone who is asleep in Jesus to wake up. That is God's plan, is the resurrection. You know, the Levy family, who were living in agony and waiting for their youngest son to die, they got to the point where his health was failing him and his body was beginning to shut down. He had stopped eating and his body was beginning to fail him, but it didn't. He all of a sudden started to recover. His parents called these moments of progress mirages because they were almost too good to be true. Um, they couldn't believe it because one time he was sitting at one of the, the first moments, these mirages they called him, he was lying down and he, was, he had stopped eating, and then all of a sudden, he sat up. Does that sound familiar? He sat up. And they, they couldn't believe it. And then he began to speak. And they couldn't believe it. I wonder what he said. <laughs> he, they couldn't believe it. They said he was about to lose his life, and all of a sudden, something miraculously happened. This cancer began to slowly disappear, and then he began to laugh. And then he began to eat some of his favorite foods. And the family is still trying to figure out to this day how to live in light of this. How to live in light of the fact that their son was just on the brink of death. And then miraculously this cancer disappeared. And he sat up and he began to speak. And he began to laugh again. And his life was given back to him. And at the very end of the article, the mom says, we're trying to figure out how to live in this new reality. And she says, day by day, we are allowing ourselves to celebrate a little more. I like that. We're allowing ourselves to celebrate a little more. Because friends, day by day, we can celebrate a little more. <laughs> a little more. 
because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we can celebrate a little more, a little more each day. We can learn to live in this new reality that God has for you and for me and for this world. His plan is to bring life. And he has brought that life through the death and resurrection of his son. So friends, let's celebrate a little more each day. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for today. We do give you thanks for the gift of life. We give you thanks that you've made us in your image, that you've made us for glory, and that you have overcome our greatest enemy, death. And that you've overcome that through your plan and your taking your son to the cross, sending your son to the cross, and in him dying and in him being raised again by the power of your spirit. Father, we give you thanks that that is your plan for all of us. That you call us to believe in you and that you call us to have faith. And we pray that you would help us to, to rejoice in the truth and the reality of this. Lord, help us to celebrate a little more each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.